Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today, we are talking with Marco Cicetto, uh, who was a college American uh, before losing his feet. We'll get to the losing the feet part. He just ran Boston and ran Boston in 237, but he is a 235 marathoner. For those of you who know what a marathon is, what marathon times is, that's he was what? He was 72nd, I think, in the New York City Marathon when he when he went to 35. So this is on two prosthetic legs. He is a technician for prosthetic and orthotic associates. And when he lost his legs, we're going to get into this story. He was, he was running in Alaska. He had a cousin who had joined him, a cousin who ended up, uh, ended up committing suicide. And Marco went out for a run, sort of distraught and, and ended up, uh, ended up in the snow for at least 56 hours and found his way back into a hotel and and just an absolutely amazing story an amazing guy i met marco kind of in boston uh across the room and i'm getting to meet him now so i'm excited marco welcome hey thank you chris for having me this is great so so boston what was boston like for you because boston is your only true time right because because they have a para class at boston so even though you ran 235 in new york boston is the one that that really makes it into the record books is that right i would think that's right so i am not i don't want to be quoted with this but i think that would be the recorded time that i have run as a bilateral amputee by a bilateral amputee so so can you explain to us what a bilateral amputee is and, and what this looks like? In a, in a layman language, this is someone missing both feet. It can either be above knee, that is the, how they explain it, or below a knee. So for my case, I am a bilateral BK, below knee amputee. Uh, so it's it's just a guy running without feet. So you see, so you lost your feet, but then you gained effectively like cheetah legs on your on your on your lower legs. How does this work? You know, this is just a device that they try to mimic your biological feet. Right. It's not close to a biological foot, but you know, close enough that I'm able to run a two thirty five. Exactly. Well, we were talking about that earlier because you were an All-American in college. You're a 5K and 10K runner, but you also ran a one half marathon and did a 109 half marathon. So, I mean, like without really training for a half marathon, you were a legit half marathoner, which is not a huge step to go up to the marathon from the from the half marathon. What is the difference for you? Because I know that, that people talk about that, right? And some of these people have have issues saying, you know, because you, you were doing uh, doing one race and, and they said, well, if you win the race, we're not going to give you credit for winning the race because you're an amputee. What do you say to the people about the idea of you have an advantage versus you don't have an advantage? And my comment about the cheetah legs, I thought that was actually sort of the uh, the, the trademark name of the, uh, of, of the prosthetic legs. You know, Chris, uh, there's 
I have two feelings when I hear that uh, statement that you are running with an advantage. One, it makes me feel sad. But then at the same time, it makes me feel happy that I live in a society whereby a majority of people who have their biological feet would think someone like myself is having an advantage. You know what I think sometimes, but I don't tell people when they ask me that? Part of me wants to ask them. So are you going to schedule an appointment with your orthopedic surgeon so you can join me and have the advantage I'm having? But, you know, I have asked that actually some people, but then, you know, they start shaking their head going, no, 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 no. So I think since we run on a mechanical thing attached to ourselves, I think usually because, you know, mechanization, we are not living in an early man life. So I think there is this thing about mechanization industrial revolution that people think anything that is not a human part must have an advantage because it's not it doesn't get tired it's like running on an engine except the engine that pushes this running prosthetics in this case is myself exactly now what's the What's the coordination like? Because when you lost your legs, you had to learn how to walk again. And, and I saw you walking with a walker and you have your, your walking legs that, then, right? And your, your stumps are all, all new and it's probably, you know, probably a big challenge, just a, a painful situation, getting the stumps to, to heal so that you can actually put the prosthetics on so that you can walk, so you can bear weight. But then you go from learning how to walk to then learning how to run. And what's what's the coordination like that? Like how how hard is it for you to run and how conscious? Because also obviously you don't feel your foot hitting the ground, do you? I mean, you you feel it through your leg, but it's got to be a little bit different. You know, it's very challenging, particularly for someone like myself who had walked on biological feet for 28 years. And then all of a sudden I had to learn walking on a prosthetic. There's always that disconnect. I, I always feel like I am not connected to my feet, my artificial feet, because below my knee, there's nothing I can do. I cannot control like, oh, maybe I need to move it left, right. Or, no, I have to move my whole foot, like using like my upper, part of my leg, like my thigh and all that, to just lift it from the ground and move it. And even when I'm driving, you know, I don't just move my angle just to like switch from like gas to brake. I have to like lift it and like move the whole foot around. So yes, there's a lot of coordination, a lot of balance. And remember, we most of the, we're using the lower back to be upright. You know, for you to be that in that erected standing position, you have to like engage your lower back and your hips to just try and push them. So there's that aspect too, whereby I'm constantly using my lower back and my hips, pushing it in so that I am upright. And then the 
biggest disadvantage, particularly on the running foot is the contact part to the ground is very minimal. So even if I step on a grain, something very, very tiny, like a tiny rock, oh yeah, that is a recipe for falling down really hard. And I have, and I don't know if you can see it, but if you see like right here, I feel like just a few weeks before Boston, I was running and like really going good. And all of a sudden, like, I don't even know what happened. I just had that, I felt like I stepped on something and there was nothing I could do, just went down. So there's that aspect. And you can even see that from like when I'm on a standing position. For example, after the Boston Marathon, trying to talk to a journalist, right. like I have to just bounce around because I cannot balance just standing. Imagine now, like I have to be thinking about that the entire time I am running. And, you know, earth, the road, it's not flat. It's not even. So that entire time I am running, I have to switch based on how my blade is pushing me. And you have to remember, particularly Boston, people drive They have in the winter. They sometimes have sand. They have sold to melt the roads or whatever they use. So there's the, there are parts of that road that is like sunken more than the other parts because that is where tires are constantly hitting people because people follow where another car has been driving over to make sure that they are not uh, going off the road. So as I'm running, like I'm in my rhythm and then all of a sudden I feel like, no, my left foot is on a higher ground than my right. So I try to switch, but there's not a lot of like space, like that tire line then. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, now my right is higher than my left. So, so I keep like switching and trying to find that comfortable place. And then all of a sudden I find like, okay, this is good. So then I'm running and then as soon as I'm like, okay, I am in my rhythm all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, there's a hole on the road. There's a railway crossing. There's something else. So there's that. So it, it is a lot of work. It's a lot of brain work. And as much, you know, when I am running, I'm trying to minimize thinking about stuff to conserve my energy to only running. But there's like every second, split second decisions to be made as I run on prosthetics, but you know, it's, I'm making it do the work. It's interesting that you say that because then you're in conscious thought as you're running, which usually I think of running, especially when you get in really good shape and you kind of go for like your long run. It's sort of like the opposite of like REM sleep kind of thing where, where REM sleep, like your body is at rest, but your mind is active. But when you're in really good shape and you go for a long run, it's like your body is active and you can kind of turn your mind off that there are times that you're running along and all of a sudden you've reached some point in your run and you don't even remember how you got there. But you're in exactly opposite where you're in conscious thought, which I had read an article at one point about these guys. And I think it was I think it was like British military and these guys were training and they were doing stuff on a treadmill, but they were making them do math problems while they were working on the treadmill, which then when they weren't on the treadmill made their perceived effort seem that much lower when they were just running. But you don't have the luxury 
of, of, of going through that situation. How much worse is it when you get tired? Because then your mind is tired too. You know, and that is the time you start realizing, you know, of course, I don't take them off to dry them. I am tired. I have like, I have uh, a liter of like sweat trapped in my liner. And I feel like the food is almost slipping off and I'm tired. My body is telling me when, then why are you doing, why are we doing this? Is it about time to like stop? So there's so many variables that I have to try and control at the same time. Yeah, so it gets like worse as I progress towards like the finish. Because yeah, you the end of the marathon even, is that much. Oh yeah, of course, yes. And like at that time, I still get like muscle cramp at some point if if I just like try to, particularly when I'm like going uphill or going downhill, I'm trying to engage my muscles differently, like fire up a muscle to climb. And that it, because remember, I am like the prosthetic is pressing up my body part that was not supposed to have something pressing. Right. So it's a wrong place. Something like that is not a part that I was supposed to be using to hold my body weight. And now as I try to engage and fire my muscles to like push myself up a hill, then it, it gets so challenging because as I fire my muscle, you know, it expands. But then as it expands, the prosthetic restricts that expansion because it's like, and I have a sleeve too that hold my prosthetic to my leg. So, and I have to use a newer sleeve to make sure that it doesn't, the air doesn't leak because I am using suction. So it doesn't give me a lot of room to expand. Like when I'm doing my practice, because, you know, I can use an older sleeve that I, you know, I don't care if it has a hole, I can stop and check and maybe turn around and be like, okay, maybe I can change. But during a run, like a competition, like running a marathon, Boston Marathon, New York, Chicago, I have to make sure that what I am using is something that can hold me until I finish. So there is a lot of those small things that, it's not physical, but it's there with me all the time as I am running. Like even when I try to zone off, my prosthetic will remind me, hey, you need to do something. Something is about to fall off or there's too much sweat right now. Your, your stump is moving around inside your prosthetic or inside your socket, I mean. Right, so there's never, there's never anything, it's never easy for you. Though I think a lot of people would look at your times and say, well, it must be relatively easy for him because those are some really, really fast times. When you got your running legs, so you got your first running legs through the Challenge Athletes Foundation. How did that end up coming about? So, you know, when I lost my feet, you know, it made the news globally. And ESPN did a piece with me, 15 minutes clip that, you know, caught attention of Osser, um, the prosthetic company based in Iceland. Mm -hmm. So 
one of the rep contacted my prosthetic, a prosthetic clinic in Anchorage, Alaska, the Northern Light Orthopedic or Prosthetic Clinic, who through their representative, you know, they came to the hospital. Of course, they knew my story, you know, a good runner. And they told me there's this nonprofit challenged athlete foundation that supports amputees like yourself if you want to run again. And I'm like, is that a question or what are you saying? Of course I want to run again. So then they guided me on how to apply. And I applied for a grant to get running feet. And I got my two flex runs in, I think I would say February, maybe March of 2013. People don't understand like all of what goes into these things. I mean, they're, they're high as high tech as you can get. How much does a running leg go for? Like, I mean, obviously there, there are variations within, but ballpark kind of figure. You know, when you get like the cheapest, cheapest prosthetic clinic that will just help you at like their cheapest, one goes for the lowest can be 7,000. That is just one. But that is just to get the socket made. So you can now put like the running blade because there is a difference between the socket and the actual running blade. Those are two different things. Exactly, yeah. And insurance don't cover them because they think, it, it, they say that it's not, it's luxury. Right, though, though for you, not being able to run or, or running is not a luxury, right? I mean, running no, is, if, a, is a way of life. If I wasn't running today, I think my insurance company would be spending so much money on me today or like maybe heart issue medication, you know, some, I would be like maybe what, 200 and something, 300 pounds, just doing nothing, you know, if I was not running. So by me running, it's actually made my life cheaper, even to my insurance company, because now they are not taking care of a guy who has like lifestyle, uh, issues with, you know, diseases like lifestyle diseases, obesity, high blood pressure, and all that. Cholesterol, higher cholesterol, no. No, you're a healthy guy, right? So if you're bilateral like myself, you're looking at, you know, up to 30,000 to get your running feet. Wow. And what did that feel like? I mean, just because you, you'd done the walking part and then you got into the running because because they asked you if you wanted to, if you wanted to run and you said yes but did you really believe that it could happen or or what was it like that first time getting to getting to run you know if it were not for the 21st century um technology videos and all that i don't think i would have believed that but you know my amputation happened in 2011 and 2012 was the London Olympics and Paralympics. And then the infamous South African Oscar Pistorius was doing really well. So a lot of people who came to my hospital to visit me 
would show me videos of guys running in the Paralympics and say, hey, look, these guys are killing it out there. There's no reason you can't, particularly someone like you who already is a runner. So that helped me. And I was able to even watch like, you know, Rigas Woods running and he's above knee. And I'm going, if this guy can run and he doesn't even have his knee, I think I'm able to. So I think I was able to believe that I would be able to run because I was able to physically see videos of people looking like myself running. But I don't think I don't think I would have just believed myself just from just being there and thinking about my ability at that time as a newly amputated guy. I don't think I would have had that. And and I as I tried to think how would that have made me believe? Like it's hard to know if I was motivated because. I just saw that and I was like, no, I can't like, look at these guys, they're doing it. I, there's no reason I cannot do this. Right, and you started as a sprinter, right? Because as a Paralympic athlete, the, the, there's no marathon for your class. For my class, the longest is 400. So I started sprinting. <laughs> to go from a 5K, 10K guy to, to doing a 400 as your short or as your longest race, what was that like? You know, it was different. Yeah. It was very different. And you know, the other thing that I used to think running in college, I used to think that the sprinters was not, were not doing as much work as us, the long distance runners, until, <laughs> until I became a sprinter myself. And I'm like, man, it just requires as much effort as long distance. So I was able to try that. And, you know, I was running good. My recorded uh, 200, I think it's like 23 seconds. Okay. That's fast. You know, fast enough. Yeah. And my recorded um, 400, I think was around 50 seconds. Okay. So, so I was, I was not, not a sprinter. I was like, this new self-made sprinter. That, so that's kind of interesting. That, that looked like I was a sprinter that looked like a distance guy. <laughs> well, it's interesting that your second 200 was actually slower than your first 200. That tells you what my body knows how to do better. <laughs> Long stuff. <laughs> Get in there and just start, just start turning. So when you, when you found the marathon, you thought, okay, this is, this is who I am. Let's take a step back because, because you, you left Kenya to go to Alaska. We've heard so many stories about running in Kenya. Is, are the stories that we've heard, are, are, those, are those legend? Are those real that you have to run to school every day and run back, that you have to run to the store? I remember reading some story about a marathoner who, who had won a big race, New York or Boston or something, and ran home and nobody picked him up at the airport. And so he put his bag on his back and ran home. Are those stories, is that really as much a part of the culture of Kenya as, as we've come to believe? It is. Because I remember the first time that I rode in a car was 1998. And I'm how old? 
Were you? I'm born 83. So 83 to 1998. That's like what, 15 almost, maybe? Yeah, 15 years old. Yeah. Yeah. So you can imagine that. Like, that was my first time. And as soon as I sat in that car, you know, walking to school, trees were stationary. They were not moving. As soon as I was in a car, trees in my neighborhood started moving. Yeah. Yeah. They, so it was a very strange feeling. So yeah, so there's a lot of walking and going to school on bare feet, running. And, and you know, it's not even like flat that you're like, oh, you particularly where I grew up. I went home to Kenya in 2000, 2020 with my family. And like what I call a road, like, you know, oh, this is our road. My wife was like, this to me is what we call a hiking trail in America, isn't it? But that was the road that we were using. Even like as we talk, there are some places that the road network is not even there. Even kids going to the elementary school that I went to, there's no bus. Like in my neighborhood, in my village, nobody owns a private car. Right. We use public vehicles. And it's only one, like, you know. Only one public vehicle. And so so did you walk? Did you run? How, how were the... Uh... How, how, I mean, because it's not scientific. It's not like you're training, no, but you're setting this like, this like endurance kind of uh, baseline, right? This, this foundation. Yes. And you have to remember too, it was not only, we were doing like what a professional athlete does, going to the gym, doing weights and all that. By, well, we finish school, you come home, you go get water from a river, you're carrying like a container, well, maybe 50 pounds maybe of water. So that is your weight training. You go and cut some firewood. So th those, were, those are your kettlebell, you know, you're swinging, you're cutting, you go to a farm, you're plowing. So that still you're throwing things, you, you know, it, it was still like now that I'm, like when I look back what I'm doing now and what I did in Kenya without doing it, thinking I was doing it to, to be strong, it's almost the same thing I'm doing now, except that I know I'm, I have to do this now to get strong, but I'm, I'm not, as strong as I used to do in Kenya, because I remember growing up, we would throw rocks, like say, let's, let's see who can throw a rock the fattest. Now I am playing with my dog, throwing a tennis ball. And then I come home, I'm thinking, well, maybe I need to go to a massage therapist tomorrow because I've been th throwing too much ball. So yeah, so the, the lifestyle is what has set those long distance runners from East Africa, you know, Ethiopia, Kenya for that endurance. And you can think of it this way. Someone who has been doing something in a very unstructured way, no structure at all, but it was still very beneficial. And then now they get a coach and they get the science of training. Think of what that can do to them. And being told that, you know, this is how you can even conserve the energy as you're running. So there's that aspect too. And then that diet, you know, they are eating real food. You know, the first time 
I landed in Alaska. No, I'd like, you know, the, first, the, the college was open and, you know, I asked my coach then, hey, where can I get lunch? And he's like, oh, there's Subway downstairs on the sports complex where we were. I said, oh, okay. And then I said, what is that again? He said, it's Subway. I said, okay, perfect. So I was like, Subway, Subway, Subway. I'm going like downstairs, going Subway, Subway, Subway. I get to Subway. I say, hey, I want Subway. And this lady who was at Subway said like so many things that I don't know what she said, but I didn't want to lose my thought about what I wanted. I didn't want to lose the food that the coach had said you like it, Subway. So after she was done, I never listened what she was saying because I didn't want to lose my thought. I said, no, 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 no. I don't want all that. I just want Subway. Because <laughs> when we order food in Kenya, you say you want ugali and beef or ugali and this thing. And that's it. You, there's no 15,000 options for just a lunch. Or if you want breakfast, you're like, hey, can I get breakfast and eggs? And then it's like, oh, so how do you want your eggs cooked? Uh, what? There's a way of cooking eggs? Okay, whatever. What do, we, what do you mean? Do you want them well cooked, this cooked, well cooked? I don't want a watery yolk. Cook it well. I just want my, you know, so that diet is simple and straight. You know, you're just eating something that's food and that's it. Can you tell people what ugali is? So ugali, this is, you know, it's cornmeal, just corn flour, and you just boil water and just mix corn flour until you get a consistency that you want. But we want it like a little hard. And so you, it's, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, a cornbread, but without like cooking oil, all the spices, whatever, it's just plain. It tastes like nothing. Just, it tastes like ugali, I would say. And then you eat it, you serve it with like beef stew, cabbage, kale, or milk. And you know, where most of these runners come from, they use cultured milk. They call it mursik. So that is one of the secrets of long distance running. I hope I'm not giving out too much of their secrets, but yeah, they, so there's the ugali or the, you know, or the, you can, you know, chicken or beef stew. Some people even use beans to eat it with the ugali. Right, exactly. So it kind of, it's almost like, it's almost like you have it as, as like, because you have it on your hands too, right? So it's sort yeah. of like you, you kind of dip it and it's, it's liquid and solid kind of like liquidy solid sort of thing. But, uh, but it's almost like using a roll kind of thing where you're, you're like absorbing the flavors of whatever else you have, right? Yeah, to help the ugali taste delicious or taste like something. You know, my kids, they go to school, they're like, oh, what did you have for dinner last night? They say ugali. They're like, dad, nobody understand. Nobody in our school knows what ugali is. Can you stop making ugali? Exactly. But then their friends are probably excited about it. Now, the area where you grew up, though, I mean, you were doing this sort of training that you didn't know you were doing the training, but you probably had to know a little bit because you saw some of the other people from your region who were who were really good. I mean, even your what your aunt was uh, was the, the first African woman to hold the world record in the marathon and to win, win New York City. So yeah. like 
it, it, I mean, it's, it's kind of a reality, I would imagine, that you think, hey, maybe the stuff that we were doing makes us actually fast. When did that realization come? Actually, I would say that realization came when I came to America, like when I was already in America, because back in Kenya, even though I was running, I did not run thinking I was going to pursue it past high school. The only reason I ran in high school was I was in a boarding school, boys boarding school. The only way you could get to go and hang around with like some girls and go to girls school and meet your friends was through sports. So I said, oh, there's no way I'm missing this. So I started running and then also to eat bread. We were given bread and milk, like the packed milk as, you know, and that was big to go, you know, to get a full loaf of bread in high school. Oh man, like being in a school team. So then, and then I was good at it. It was nothing hard for me, but that was just to like have fun and like travel around the country because, you know, you, I could go to like other places in Kenya for competitions. And, and, then, and then the teachers decided to do something really cool with, so all the distance guys would ride in girls' buses. So what I, was that? Oh, you know, we were riding with the girls, like, you know, when we drive, you know, they say, oh, you guys will go because we had so many. So the rugby and whatever, we'll use the boys bus. And then these skinny guys, you know, you guys can go with girls to drive for like when 10 hours, whatever. So it was a lot of, it, it gave me that like different environment to be able to like meet my friends from the village who went to girls schools and all that. So it was kind of like, you know, it, it gave me that exposure of like, okay, how, how do you guys study this? How you, and remember Kenya too, they, particularly where I come from, the emphasis of girl child was not to go to school was not as it was the same as boys. And, and I, we, we start, even I remember going to church uh, when I was in high school, it was something that we tried to push telling our parents, Hey, I think it would be good if all of us, regardless of our gender, go to school. And it was, for me, a kind of advocacy started when I was in high school for like, okay, we got to push the girls to go to school. But in order to do that, it was the understanding of what are they thinking of? What are the girls thinking about FGM, the female genital mutilation? Do they want to do that? What do they think about early pregnancies today? And through running, I got to understand a lot of that because like I said, we were told to ride in a bus with girls because you know, there's like a lot wrong, you know, skinny girls, boys and girls, you know, they fit with, I don't know how they came up with that, but that's what we did, which I really appreciate that happened. Like I did that because even what I'm doing now back home, I have a school back in Kenya that I started in 2012. And through what I learned from my friends in sports is what I am using to see how we can change the narrative about the female genital mutilation, which still happens today as we speak with you. It's still an issue in my village. Like nobody talks about it because nobody even knows what that is. 
No, it's a huge issue. But these these were the conversations that you were having on the bus as a as a high school student about like yes yeah really? because because we like there was so like so many of our friends that we were in school were like married off and all these things. But then when I saw the ones that got the opportunity to go to school, what they were doing, like they were doing the same things that the boys were like even better. I remember even seeing a girl from my village who was playing volleyball and she could hit it so hard that I was like, you know, watching them, I was like trying to hit that volleyball and I couldn't hit it as hard as she was. So there was that like, look at what these mentality we are having back in the village that you know they're girls they they you know they can be in the kitchen you know my mom would be like no 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 don't worry about it like they'll be fine the boys can go to school the girls can be women you know they they were not given the same opportunity as us boys wow so that so so did you see running then as an opportunity to affect a greater change within Kenya for for equality, for equality for women, for you know eliminating some of these some of these what traditional traditional practices. Yes, I did because remember, like I was saying, the, the girl who was hitting volleyball, because mm -hmm. remember, we've been told that you know the role of girls in society was to do things that were not hard and tough. I even remember one time when I was in college in Kenya and my dad came and visited me. And she's like, he was telling me, you've got to listen to this. I think, what that? He's like, you know the bus that was carrying like more than 50 people that I rode to the city? I say, what about it? He said, the driver was a woman. My dad was so surprised that a woman could drive a bus. But then I was like, dad, but how did, did it feel like, did you feel the difference when like, cause you've rode a bus that is driven by a man. He's like, yeah. I said, was there a difference? Like, no, but this was a tough lady, man. That was not an ordinary like lady. So I realized that if you know the mental stuff, nobody would understand that. I had seen it, like even when the girls would do good at school, it never made people go, huh, maybe they are the same as boys, but the physical aspect would make them think twice because some girls who used to play soccer with boys and like would just kick the boys, people actually saw those ones as strong and be like, wow, wow. This is, but most of them were like that. Most of the girls were like that, but it was just because of how community perceived them. And it's still even today, there's still a lot of push about that. And even, the, and even the, 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 the female genital mutilation, the school that I told you I started, right. there was a time my brother called me and said, hey, we have to look for a teacher. I said, why, why do we have to look for a teacher? And he told me one of the teachers that was teaching the school went and got circumcised. So we don't have it. What? Can you, can you repeat that again? Someone who is graduated college. And yeah, so it's still happening even to the. So, so this is a female teacher who went and, 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 and had female circumcision. Yeah. What you're saying. 
Yeah, and, and it's not because she wanted to do that. It was because of the stigma that she was facing among the women around there. They, she was always pushed like, oh no, you can't be with us. You've not gone through what the women, the, the rite of passage that some of us went through. So there's nothing we can discuss or talk with you. So she was just pushed all the time. And so she had, she succumbed to pressure from community. From but the other I, women. Yeah, from the women who, like all the women, but through, through sports and education, I realized that since we, because there are some parts of Kenya that don't do this, they don't practice what, you know, is still being practiced in where I come from. That ability to travel to other parts of Kenya gave them that exposure. They, they got to see something different. And that's and, what and, you're and, trying to do in your school? Yes. And the thing that I'm trying to, to do is making sure that the girls themselves <laughs> understand that, you know, this is something that they can do without going through. This rite of passage is something that you don't need it to be a teacher or a nurse or a doctor or an athlete. You don't need to go through that. But it's an ideological fight that has to be gradual because they, they, they are still, they're trying to go to school and they're still young. They can like fight with their parents. Otherwise they will be regarded as disobedient kids, right? But, and, and you know, the government is stepping up now. It's illegal in Kenya, but it's still being practiced, you know? in like the rural parts where there is nobody to enforce. So the idea is to get those kids to understand that, hey, look, you don't need this to succeed in life. My sister, who is like just two years younger than me, was circumcised just because, yeah, Wow. So, and then you're looking like, okay, well, so I even have my friends here in the US from the region that I come from that, you know, their siblings, the girls still go through the same rite of passage because it's a big deal to fight it. Now, how, so for you looking at it, going to the U.S., going, getting to run at the, in the U.S., was that, was that another step to be able to, to, to then have, have a bigger voice, have more power, be able to fund this school? Is this what you saw when you were, when you were going to the U.S., and how did that work that you were a runner who then ended up in Alaska? Because Kenya to Alaska, those are some fairly different places. I would say, yes, the exposure that I got from, you know, I went to college in Kenya prior to coming to America. That going even to college in Kenya, not even here yet, gave me a different exposure, sharing experiences from other people, other students from other parts of Kenya who did not prescribe to whatever we believed in my village at all. We were in our own, circle of thought process that nobody else, like a ton of people didn't even believe it. So that gave me that opportunity. Then I come to America 
and then my horizons opened. You know, when you are in Kenya, you look, it's like, okay, this is it. I have like made it to the peak. Then I come to America, I was like, wow, I had not even seen half of what I thought I had seen. But then I thought about my own experience. How did I get to where I am? School and sports. So then I thought, what if I created a, a, a system that even if it brings like one person every 15 years or every whatever, I was just stretching it like the minimal impact that that could create over time. And I said, you know what? If I could even change one person or bring one person who can carry the beliefs that I have, and then we become two, we become three, we become 10. I share this story with my friends through a podcast, through my own stories. And then I get more, I get more word out there. And maybe I get more people who would want to support me in this course of trying and gradually change what these people are thinking. Because it's not criminal. I can't blame them for what they believe because there was a point even when I was in Kenya that I believed 90% of the things that we were being told because I grew up being told this is what it is. So if- Who are you to challenge it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then looking back, there are some things I'm like, how, how did I even believe that? How did I even think that was like something that I needed to do? But then it's because of the exposure. It's because of the things that I have seen, I've experienced in life. So, and then, so now I am a strong believer that if you give someone an opportunity to experience something good, something good will come out of it. Exactly. So you, you went to the US and, and your world was opened up. You had the chance to experience something good, but then you also had probably the worst thing that you could imagine happen when your when your cousin committed suicide, how how did that change your world view from this positive path to to where you ended up in you know in, in a really difficult position? You know, prior to me losing my feet, I had yeah I still had plans of doing the things that I wanted to do. But I, I was telling myself, let me finish school first. Let me graduate. Then I will do this after this. And then my cousin commits suicide. I plunged into major depression. I lose my feet. And then I survived. Now the depression thing. Hold on. Can I, can I talk? Because you are such an upbeat guy. Have you always been like this upbeat? Like this is, I see a problem and I can, and I can see a solution. Because when I was when I was reading about you being depressed, I felt like you were the kind of guy who would, if you were depressed, you would be disappointed in yourself for being depressed. Was there that kind of conflict going on for you when you're in the midst of this depression? Yes, and I think that is what, I think you put it, like I had not thought about it that way. Like you, you are disappointed that why am I feeling the way I'm feeling? And I think that is exactly what I, not that I think, that is what I was struggling with. Because 
I'm always thinking, look, you know, I, I was one of these guys that were like, oh, somebody is having a problem. Can we maybe rally behind and help and do this? And now I can't even help myself. I can't. But then the other thing was that, you know, and this is, I'm seeing it, it is a global issue. Nobody really, a few people can talk about their mental struggle, like depression, be it a Kenyan, be it an American. But I felt like it, you know, I was more reserved. And I didn't want to share most of the things that I was going through because remember, I, I was here as a student athlete, an international. I was on a student visa. And, you know, there are so many things that could go really wrong if you don't maintain your status as a student. So there was that part that I didn't want to expose my vulnerability. And maybe they would be like, well, we could maybe take you back home. Then maybe you would feel better. Right. Yeah. So I was trying to hide that part to be able to maintain my eligibility and graduate because that is what I came for. So there were so many things, but then when I finally, you know, was stuck after going for a run, not really, I, you know, wandering out because major depression and I was taking antidepressants, passed out for taking more than I should, trying to fix the issue that I was going through. I passed out 56 hours later, I emerged went to the hospital and I remember one thing, a doctor asked me, how do you feel after I gained consciousness because I was on and off. I don't need, I came, they said it was around 3 a.m. in the morning, but I remember when I was able to talk and knew where I was, it was around like 2 p.m. All that time I didn't like, I don't remember anything. Right, the, I, at the hotel said you came in and just said 911. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't even remember that, but I don't even remember the, like, who I saw, was it a man, was, like, I, I really don't even know. Now I feel like I know because I know the area when I went back after I was fully recovered. I feel like I know, but I really don't because I was like, wow, okay, I ended up in this hotel. And then how did I end up in the hospital? It's like, how, how did they move me from the hotel to, I don't know, the ambulance or something, and then to the hospital. So I don't remember that part. But I, so talking of after amputation, and I was sitting in my hospital bed, and before the amputation, I was saying, the doctor asked me, hey, Marco, how do you feel? I said, I feel good. The only problem that I have is my hands. My hands are so, so painful. Like I can't- There's frostbite I, there too, right? So the doctor was like, mm, man, this guy was crunching his teeth. Like, no, I don't like the idea that you're saying you cannot feel your feet because Pain is sign of life. It tells you you're still living. And I've carried that even in my running when I'm like, oh man, this is painful. I say, hey, remember, you're still alive. This is good. <laughs> this is a good thing. So the amputation happened and I'm sitting in my hospital bed or sleeping thinking, how did I end up here? And you know, Chris, I think this was a good thing to me because I was like at my lowest point that I did not have anything to hide at that point and anything more to lose 
So I said, you know what? And I, I was like, what are these guys gonna do with me? Ship me to Kenya like this? Like, I said, I can refuse and just sit down and be like, I'm not going to Kenya now. Look, I can't even walk. But I started thinking, you now have lost everything, including your feet and your American dream. There's no way you can get out of this. But what is the worst thing that can happen if you try and build yourself from this? What is, I said, nothing. I've already lost what brought me to America. I've lost my American dream. But, and if, there, if, if I could really prevent things from happening, like I was guilty of maybe preventing my cousin from committing suicide, would it have been my own self? Like would, if I could prevent things, would I have prevented my feet from being amputated? And you know, it's part of experience, learning experiences in life. I said, you know what, this has happened. So I told myself in the hospital bed, what I'm gonna do today is I'm, go I'm stopping taking my antidepressants. And you know, I always say, Chris, I am not giving a medical advice. I am not a doctor. I am not a psychiatrist. I'm not a clinician in any form about mental health. So this is my own things I was telling myself. I say, I'm going to stop the antidepressants. And I'm just going to, because every time I tell my, I told myself something good, I felt good. I said, man. And then I would sleep. Like, you know, I'm like telling myself good things. And then all of a sudden, I don't even finish telling myself good things. And then I sleep. And then I wake up, I said, no, 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 no. I am not going to tell myself anything bad because remember when I was telling myself something good, it was so pleasant that I fell asleep. And then through that process, I realized something. I learned something that happiness is a skill. It's not innate. It's not something that be like, oh yeah, I want to be happy without like actually practicing to be happy. I said, you know what? I am going to do this telling myself positive things. If I have like one negative thought, I will tell myself a thousand positive things. And then I am having this fantasy, like telling myself this good thing. And I said, then I am going to, after I get out of the hospital, I want to be a motivational speaker. And prior to losing my feet, actually, you can go to my previous videos in college where, I was just this guy who would just speak, you know, public speaking was my thing. I was like, you know what? I know how to speak. I'm not scared. I'm not afraid speaking to a crowd. So I'm going to do that. Sharing my experiences, sharing how it feels to be depressed and telling someone, hey, don't be like myself. Don't hide that because look at what it did to me. Had I shared more of what I was afraid to share. Maybe that would have saved my feet. But then at the same time though, I tell myself, but then what if having my feet would have made me think the way I thought before losing them? I said, maybe, no, 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 I'm good now. Because what I can, the experience, the life experience that I have now, the passion, the things that I appreciate now, are more than what I used when I used to have my feet. I don't even remember one time that I woke up one morning and say, God, thank you so much for providing me with two feet. But now, Mia, you can walk close to my prosthetic, Chris. I'll be like, no, 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 no. Hey, hey, don't step on them. I need those more than anything else.
So then I, you know, I self-talked myself and I started feeling better. The only part that I didn't feel better was the cold turkey on antidepressants. I was having all kinds of things going on in my head, but I held on to it. And I didn't even tell my doctors that I, or my nurses that I was not taking my medicine, but I was keeping them. After like more than like maybe 15 days, I told them, I, you know what? I've not been taking my antidepressants. I don't want them. Here they are. I gave them back and I stopped taking them. And, and then I also know now, even now, there are some times when I'm like really down, like things are not going, but then I know it's okay. I don't beat myself up that, oh man, I want to bang my head. Why am I feeling like this today? I embrace it. I say, man, this is not fun. Today is not a good day, but you know what? It's what today has for me. So I embrace that too. I don't fight it. I fight yeah. it in, in a positive way. Like, okay, you know, so now I know even with feet, you can still be sad. And even without the feet, you can still be sad. So it's part of the process of life. You're, you're still human. You haven't changed in that respect. And your story, I mean, your story from, from Kenya to Alaska of having this dream of affecting the lives of the women in the girls and women in your country, of, of coming to, to run in the US, of losing your cousin, of losing your feet and emerging from it, your, your voice is, is bigger as well. I mean, you said you told stories before, but, but your voice is bigger. Is that something that you have grown into after, after losing your feet? Yes, I have. Because my experience, I feel like I have gone through like a full circle of life. I'm like a cat now with nine lives, you know? So what I, and I believe I, in a storytelling, you know, like, you know, you know, see when you watch a movie and they say, this is a true story. Look at the audience when they say, this is a true story. People like pay attention because like, wow. Like the, the, that movie Lone Survivor, is that what, the, 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 the guy who survived? Uh, on, the, on, the, on the deserted island? Yes. Yep, uh, Survivor, yes, yeah. So for me, I know how impactful my story is because it's a true story. I don't have to sit down and write something to share. I went through it. I know how it feels. But then I know a lot of us have issues, challenges in life. The only, the only difference between me and maybe someone else is mine are physical. Someone can be like, oh, no way. That guy is not, he's missing his feet. But we all have this, you know, some kind of challenges. So my voice is grown bigger through what I have gone through and what I am able to do. Because I don't think we give ourselves credit sometimes. We, we, we get scared of, well, they will think I am bragging type deal. But then I look at myself, I say, you know what? I am, honestly, I am not bragging about what I have done. I have done great things that I know a lot of people can do out there. They need to hear more and more of stories like myself of greatest comeback ever in life. And yes, you can too. 
come out of the situation that you are in. It's not going to define who you are. And this is how I know, Chris, because I have been afraid, you know, not afraid, but you know how, like, if you're not missing anything, you don't know how it feels not to have it. Like, I don't have my feet now. But the power inside me never diminished. I still have that heart of, like, wanting to do something big, even when I don't have a lot of big things in me, like my feet. So then I realized the power in us is not outside us, it's in us. So we just need to generate that and get out of ourselves and it will excel us, it will push, propel us to greater heights. We don't give ourselves enough credit, and then we suppress our potentials. Who in your family or in your village was the storyteller? I mean, did you kind of come to this on your own or did you follow in the, in the footsteps of someone else? No, I did not follow into the footsteps of someone else. You know, growing up, I was this kid who would get in trouble all the time for questioning things. I was very curious at a young age. So at age five, my mom donated me to my grandmother to go. But my grandmother was not too far from my mom's house. It was just like a few blocks, like, you know, a few, like maybe three minutes walk to my grandma's house. But because my grandma didn't have someone young to stay with. And they said, hey, you go stay with my grandma. But my mom used to tell me, to warn me that, hey, this too much talking might not take you far. You need to do more and speak less. But I couldn't help. <laughs> like before I know it, I have always said so many things that I'm in trouble already. We still have like chiefs and village elders. And there was a like sometimes when kids who are just playing, sitting down, and if like an elder, like an older person passes, we had to stand up. For them. But then I, 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 I didn't want to. I said, why do we have to do that? Why do we have to stop playing to let an adult go by? I've never seen an adult do that when we kids go somewhere. But you know, that got me in a lot of trouble. I remember one time my dad was called to school because I questioned that. Because I, I felt like it was some kind of suppression. Had an oppression of some sort. Like that is how I, as a young kid, I said, why do they tell us to stand up? Like kids are having fun. And then all of a sudden, and we have to stop playing our mini soccer games. Like we were not even on their way. They, they had a will. So it's those little things. And then, and then I saw, you know, the, the way the women and girls were treated. And then like something inside me was like, man, we have to do something. But I didn't have the power to like do something. I didn't know how to do it without getting in trouble. So then that is when I was like, let me learn from like these people. Are they really going through what I think they're going through? Or maybe this is like my own head. So I was like my own storyteller. And then when I was in high school, I participated in drama and music festivals and like comedy and all that. So it, it was something that was in me. I, I couldn't help to not be myself. 
You're a guy who just has to open your mouth and 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 talk. Yeah, and talk, talk, and well, get in trouble like with my mom, but like I never got in trouble like in school or whatever. Like it was just when we were like on a social gathering, then yeah, I talked. Do you talk when you run? No, I don't talk when I, but I, I, I do a lot of planning. I plan when I'm training, I'm like running my head, like, okay, this is what I want. And I'm thinking about like how I want to change the world and how I want to build my school in Kenya and how I want to get a sister school in America so that the kids in Kenya can get an opportunity to share ideas with their friends in Africa and all things like that. I like always thinking about, okay, how do we plant more trees in my village because so many trees have been cut and like things like that. Like just doing small things to just change a society. What's, what's next for you, Marco? Next is to break a sub 230 in marathon and build modern classrooms in my school in Kenya. And what's the what's the time frame on that building the modern classrooms in Kenya and and on the two thirty eight marathon or the to to do two thirty eight or two thirty five? What did you say? Two thirty. Two thirty. Oh, just two thirty. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's significant. So that's it that's almost big, six minutes faster a, than you've gone. It's a very tall order, but I think I can do it. And I am plan. I'm trying to do those this year. The school. It's been ten years since I started that school. And I have a few friends that, you know, I've reached out to that are joining with me. And if someone listening to us talk wants to follow me on my journey on building modern classrooms, they can go to marathon, to, no, to marcochesero.com. That's my website, just my name, marcochesero.com and see what we can do. And then for breaking at 2.30, man, I have to do that by myself, I guess, like training. But I know the school, I can rally friends that we can do it. On the running part, I have to like grind until when I am running and then I have those spectators and they will push me to a 2.30. Are the two connected in your mind? Is there a way that yes. running a sub 2.30 marathon helps you to, to build the modern classrooms? Yes, because I know all these are very tall orders. Like this is, these are big things, but a marathon is not a small thing. Every step I make tells me start small. Just have the idea, go small, but be consistent. Do it over and over and over and talk about your school and running over and over and over. And before you know it, you will be able to do it. And you know, the other thing too, Chris, that I really, and I'm going to do this, it's going to happen, is, you know, the school in Kenya. I'll go around, partner with some few schools here in the US. There's a school in particular here in Florida. I'm not talking about what the school yet. I'm still hunting for the director of the school so that we can ask parents, kind of like an exchange, program, send some kids from America to my village for a week or maybe or a month. They'll have to wash their own clothes. They have to go to the river to fetch their water and they have to go to school and then run and then we bring them to America and then see what they think. 
And I know they will enjoy it because I took my kids who were born in America to Kenya in 2020. And guess what? When it was time to come back to America, they didn't want to come back. They're like, no, we are not going to America. We don't want to, we don't want you being following us all the time. Hey girl, don't go here, don't do this. Because it, they were just in the village and doing their own thing. They enjoyed that freedom. And they are like, no, it's way too cool to be around grandma too. So maybe it was a grandma that it was, but you know, they loved all the above. That is awesome. Well, this is, well, we, we will look forward. You're going to have to tell us, uh, you're going to have to tell us about the 230 marathon and about the, about the modern school as well, Marco. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a, a great story and, and uh, you know, I'm sure you've created a lot of amazing fans out there too. I, I hope I have. I'm sure you have. And, and for all of you, I hope that you are fans of Marco. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. Please, if you liked what you heard, tell your friends, tell them to tune in. We'd like to get this, this story, these stories to more and more people out there. This will be a traditional podcast. So you will be able to find it on Spotify, Apple, all the places that you find your regular podcasts. It also will be on the One Revolution page. It'll be archived there. So if you want to go back and see it in its entirety, you can do exactly that. Please tune in next week. Thank you, Marco. And thank you all of you for tuning in.